Today on the Matt Wall Show, Dr. Fauci is coming under fire from both the left and the right. And what is it that has finally made the public turn on him? The answer to that question tells us quite a bit about our culture and its priorities. Also, a Virginia court rules that a girl was, in fact, raped inside a bathroom in a Loudoun County school. But the media still isn't ready to accept the story fully. In fact, they're now engaging in what, in any other circumstance, would be called victim blaming. And a GOP Senate candidate says that he doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. He's getting criticism for that, but he has a point. Plus, the Republican candidate for uh, governor of Virginia is surging in the polls after leaning into cultural and social issues. Might the Republican Party finally learn a valuable lesson from that? We'll talk about all that and more on The Matt Walsh Show. It was revealed some months ago that the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, under the leadership of Anthony Fauci, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars funding experiments in which aborted babies at 20 weeks gestation were chopped into pieces and little bits of them were then grafted onto rodents to create, as it is described by the researchers, humanized mice. This really happened. Uh, The mice with baby scalps attached to them were monitored for weeks in an effort to learn more about infectious diseases and cancer and whatever else. Now, there's a very good chance that you never heard about those experiments at all, but whether you did or didn't, it can, it can be said that there was little public outcry over it. There was no public outcry. There was certainly no bipartisan outrage about it. Just as there's been um, no bipartisan outrage, there's been outrage, but no bipartisan outrage over the fact that Fauci's NIH funded virus research in Wuhan, something that the National Institute of Health finally admitted this week after months of denial from Fauci personally in front of Congress in many sessions, arguing back and forth with, uh, with Rand Paul, saying this didn't happen. Now they admit that it did. That's to say nothing of Fauci's incompetence, indifference, and political gamesmanship during the pandemic, the pandemic that his institution may partially be responsible for in the first place. I mean, overall, Fauci has shown an utterly callous disregard for human life and human suffering. He has special contempt for life at its most vulnerable stages in the womb, which is also why he went running to the World Health Organization a day after Biden's inauguration to triumphantly announce that the Mexico City policy banning funding of abortion overseas would be lifted. I mean, he couldn't wait for that to happen. This is the kind of man that Fauci is, a soulless bureaucrat, a shill who feels no guilt for the blood on his hands. And there's a substantial amount of human blood on his hands. But in spite of the moral crimes I just listed, and perhaps partially because of them, Fauci has been, as you've noticed, not only let off the hook, but hailed as a hero, much like Andrew Cuomo was in the early months of the pandemic. You recall that Cuomo was so widely acclaimed that people on the left were proudly declaring themselves Cuomo-sexual, even as the then-governor consigned thousands of elderly people to their deaths by locking them in nursing homes with COVID-positive patients. That didn't hurt his reputation at all. Until it came out that Cuomo, along with being a serial killer of the elderly, also made inappropriate comments to women. You know, the mass graves of grandmas and grandpas, those were tolerable, but flirtatious remarks to women were not. And so Cuomo was summarily knocked off of his perch and then right out of the governor's mansion. Perhaps Fauci may face a similar fate as this week for the first time in his career. He's been the target of negative headlines in the corporate media. And we're told bipartisan outrage, not because little babies were chopped into pieces and stitched onto rats, not because the NIH funded research in Wuhan, not because of the thousands dead due to incompetence and malice from our public health expert class, including Fauci, but because some dogs were mistreated. Here's our local Fox 17 in Nashville uh, with the story. It says a Tennessee congressman is among 23 other federal lawmakers, bipartisan group, to sign a letter calling on Dr. Anthony Fauci and the National Institutes of Health to respond to reports on the testing and killing of puppies in the name of science. The issue centers around a report from the Animal Advocacy Group and taxpayer watchdog White Coat Waste Project, which has previously reported on puppy testing, specifically beagles. WCWP reports this is the fourth time they've uncovered inhumane practices on beagle puppies funded by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, a part of the NIH, which Dr. Fauci heads. The report states that the um, NIAID spent $1.6 million in taxpayer funds to poison and debark 44 beagle puppies, force-feeding the puppies an experimental drug, cutting their vocal cords, and then killing and dissecting them. 
The cutting of the vocal cords known as debarking is opposed by the Humane Society of the United States and the American Veterinary Medical Association, uh, or a procedure that the WCWP calls a pain, painful and cruel, adding that their fundings were a result of a freedom of uh, their findings, rather, a result of a Freedom of Information Act request, saying the studies on beagles were unnecessary as the drug being studied had already been extensively tested and confirmed on different animals. Okay, and PETA has, of course, come out strongly, as expected as well. Even though PETA kills dogs all the time, so they shouldn't have an issue here. As mentioned, the lawmakers demanding answers from Fauci are bipartisan, marking the first time that the phrase bipartisan lawmakers and demand answers from Fauci can be used in a sentence together. In another first, there have been actual critical headlines about Fauci in mainstream news sites. And the criticism is warranted, of course. It sounds like the Beagle experiments were unnecessary and cruel, even if the ultimate goal was to develop medical treatments that might benefit human beings. I mean, I would rather, if you got to test this stuff, I'd rather it be tested on animals, not people. But even so, sounds like it was a very cruel and terrible experiment. And yet, dogs are not people. Puppies are not babies. Not human babies, anyway. There is nothing you could do to a puppy that would be worse than scalping an infant, which is what they did in those other experiments that nobody cared about. They scalped infants. Now, I am welcoming of, an, of any warranted criticism Fauci receives. And if this is ultimately the thing that leads to him to resign in disgrace, much like Cuomo, I don't know if that'll happen or not. But if it does, I'll be happy to see him go. But at a certain point, we have to stand back and, and assess our priorities and figure out how we ended up in a culture where tortured puppies attract more outrage than tortured babies. I mean, this, isn't, this is not a, a what about thing. It's not a what aboutism because I'm not trying to change the subject from, from, uh, from these experiments. What I'm trying to do is talk about priorities. And the fact that we, and I speak in general terms when I say we, value the lives of dogs over the lives of our fellow human beings. We practice the weirdest form of pagan animal worship in this country that the world has ever seen. It's not based in mythology like other cultures, unless we count all the anthropomorphizing Disney movies that we grew up watching. And I do think actually that has something to do with it. Um, and there are no standard religious practices surrounding it. We've come to our animal worship, not from a position of religious fervor necessarily, but more from a place of despair and indifference. We don't recognize the inherent worth and dignity in human beings anymore. So we've elevated dogs to take that place instead. This is something so pervasive that you hear it even from conservatives. This, unfortunately, I wish I could say this is a left versus right. This is another left versus right um, uh, paradigm here, but it's not. I hear from self-professed conservatives all the time saying, in fact, proudly saying, openly saying, yeah, I, 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 I value dogs more than people. I care about my dog more than I care about most people. This is, and you're a conservative, saying that you value human life below dogs and you think that, that you can qualify as a conservative. What exactly do you think you're conserving here? I thought one of the most fundamental things we're conserving is the dignity and moral worth of human life. And if you're putting dogs above people, then you're not conserving that. And you're not on my side. I don't know whose side you think you're on. And this is something we don't want to talk about. This is something nobody wants to talk about. I mean, I've been talking about it for, for years. There is something... And I know it's difficult for a lot of people because, our, because of our attachment to dogs. And no one is saying that we shouldn't have pet dogs as pets or we shouldn't care about our dogs. But if you notice something within yourself where you value the lives of dogs over people, then that is a deep sickness in your soul that you need to try to fix. Because this, this, we cannot have a society like this. Where this even needs to be a discussion. Where it can come out that they were chopping babies into pieces 
and nobody cares until they say, oh yeah, they, they also did it to dogs. Our priorities are massively out of a line, and we need to get them straight. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, as an increasing number of companies fall over themselves trying to appeal to the left, wouldn't it be nice to find one company, just one, that supports your values? Well, here's one. Charity Mobile is the pro-life phone company. They partner with you to automatically support the pro-life, pro-family charity of your choice with 5% of your monthly plan price, and uh, they've sent millions of dollars to charities so far and done a lot of good in the world because of it. But there's uh, a lot of other great perks that you get as a customer. New activations and eligible accounts get a free cell phone with free activation and free shipping when you mention offer code Walsh. And it's really easy to switch. If you're worried about the hassle of switching uh, uh, carriers, it's easy to do. You can keep your existing phone number and you may even be able to keep your existing phone on top of it. If you need a new phone, well, no problem. Charity Mobile has a variety of options from basic flip phones and low-cost smartphones to the latest 5G phones. Monthly plan prices have just been lowered again as well. And now you can add even more lines to family plans. So switch to Charity Mobile right now and support causes you care about. Call them at 1-877-474-3662 or chat with them online at charitymobile.com and mention offer code Walsh. And, you know, there's there's uh, just one other note on the dog thing. Um. There is there the other thing about it the, the other the other factor here that plays into it, I think there is the fact that a lot of people value dog life over human life. That's 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 the big that's the big story here, um, but also because we tend to be pretty shallow and and um, and uh, we we have difficulty following stories that are a little bit more complicated when there's an image attached to the story it's going to get a lot more attention. It shouldn't be that way. You know, you shouldn't need the image. You shouldn't need the photograph. If someone tells you that something happened and you know that it happened, that it's true that it happened, like the experiments they did with um, quote-unquote fetal tissue, there's, there's no denying that that happened. It's just we don't have any images of it. With the, with the dog experiments, there is one image of the dogs with their heads in the, in the glass boxes where they're being eaten alive by sand fleas, I guess. And there's an image of that, and so that, that is another factor that plays into it. But that doesn't justify the discrepancy. That also speaks to our shallowness um, as, as people. All right. Let's uh, move on to another issue that we, we, that we should all care about. And at least most of us on the on most of us seem to care about at least on the right anyway. This should be another thing that's bipartisan. From the Daily Wire, it says a Virginia court ruled Monday that there is enough evidence to find that a teen accused of sexually assaulting a fellow student at Loudoun County High School bathroom in May engaged in non-consensual sex, i.e., it was a rape. The Daily Wire broke the story of the sexual assault in Loudoun County last month, uh, bringing to light two alleged rapes at two separate schools, one of which involves Scott Smith's daughter. Smith was later arrested at a Loudoun County school board meeting. So we know about that. The teen who appeared in court on Monday is standing trial on two separate cases. So we, ha- we finally have official confirmation of that as well because we heard about the second rape and it wasn't officially confirmed that it was by the same student, but now that's official as well. Um, one involving a student at Stonebridge High School and a different incident in a classroom at Broad Run High School, both in the Loudoun County School District. So there was a girl raped in a bathroom and then that the rapist is sent to a different school where he then rapes a, stu- a, a, a fellow student in a classroom this time. The teen who reportedly identifies as gender fluid is alleged to have assaulted Scott, Scott, Miss, Scott Smith's daughter in a girl's restroom at Stonebridge while wearing a skirt. Um, despite indications that he had committed a serious crime, the boy was, was then transferred. So this is, this is confirmation. The rape did occur. Um... We know that the cover-up happened, too. We have absolute confirmation of that. We know that it happened because we have the Loudoun County School Board on record. We have the superintendent on record saying that they had no information of any assaults happening in bathrooms. When we know that they did. We know that they were told about it, so we know they lied. There was absolutely a cover-up, no question about it. We don't have to say alleged. We don't have to say alleged about the rape either now. These are things that happened. So what's the media going to do? Um, they've tried ignoring this. They can't fully ignore it because we have, we have forced them to acknowledge it. 
And so now they are retreating to what in any other circumstance they would call victim blaming. So here is Justin Juvenal, who's a reporter, um, calls himself a justice reporter, ironically enough, for the Washington Post. And he, he posted, he said, a teen testified she met a classmate for consensual sex in the girls' bathroom of a Loudoun County high school before, but in a May encounter, she was sexually assaulted. New details in the case at the center of a firestorm. Now, even that detail, that according to the Washington Post, this teen girl had a previous, um, had previous sexual encounters, previous consensual sexual encounters with this boy. But in this case, it was not consensual. Now, adding in that detail, especially making it sort of a headline, uh, Justin here posted it on Twitter, making it kind of the headline. In any other circumstance, we, that would be called victim blaming. And for good reason, actually, because what, what, what difference does that make? What does that have to do with anything? Because, because in the past, she's, she'd had consensual encounters with this, you know, this what, 14-year-old girl? Had had consensual, 14 or 15 year old, years old, had consensual encounters with this boy. That means, what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything at all. The fact is she did not consent in this case, and so that's rape. But there is, given what's at stake here as far as the left and the media is concerned, you know, there's, there's it, it's really two levels. First of all, this is about assaults in public school and a public school cover-up, something that, as we've talked about on this show, is endemic in the public school system. There is a, there is a real sexual assault epidemic, a crisis in the school system, and there has been for decades. And before we ever injected any of the gender ideology aspects into any of these stories, the media had no interest in talking about it. Because it's the public school system. And if we're going to talk about um, epidemics of sexual assault, they much, you know, they're fine talking about it in Hollywood, even though Hollywood is left wing. They certainly would, would uh, like talking about it in, in the Catholic Church, but not in the public school system. So already they're predisposed to ignore these cases. And then you add in the fact that this kid is gender nonconforming. This happened in a bathroom at a time when the school board was pushing through a policy to open up the bathrooms for boys and girls to share together. You add in that and um, there is no level they won't to which they will not stoop to include victim blaming. All right. Uh, this is from CNBC. As the media continues its war on Facebook, it says the Facebook Papers, a series of articles published by a consortium uh, of 17 U.S. news outlets beginning Friday, shed new light on the company's thinking behind its actions leading up to the Capitol insurrection, quote unquote, on January 6th and its ability to fend off hate speech in languages outside of English. Facebook shares vacillated between slightly negative and slightly positive Monday after the news outlets published their stories based on the leaked documents. So now we've got uh, 17 outlets coming together to dump all the information that they have, all, all of the dirty little secrets about Facebook. Um, CNN, in fact, had a segment this morning about Facebook where they're talking about the quote-unquote damning allegations. And at a certain point, they scroll a kind of Star Wars scroll of all of the crimes and high crimes and misdemeanors committed by Facebook. Let's, uh, let's watch that. The following are accusations, revelations, or admissions of what Facebook and its branches are doing to the world. Told not in the words of Facebook's outside critics, but critics from the inside. That it is a platform for spreading of hate speech. That it is ripe for abuse by those who wish to do harm. That it is a petri dish for poisonous misinformation. That it has opened the floodgates to conspiracy theories that cost lives. It's a safe haven for politicians to lie, a marketplace for trafficking and for selling human beings, and it's especially damaging to the self-esteem of young girls. That it provided some of the fuel for the Capitol insurrection, an empowerment vehicle for extremists at home and abroad, and has a different standard for safety based on the country in which you live. And much of this hasn't been or can't be stopped. Facebook has not or cannot sufficiently police itself, critics say, 
misleading investors along the way. And perhaps most damning of all is that the company is accused of knowing so much of this, but doing so little to stop it. Instead, whistleblowers show Facebook has and continues to prioritize growth over safety and profit over people. Uh the thing that continues to be so funny about this Facebook story from the media is that there is a scandal with Facebook and with big tech and all big social media sites, which is the way that they censor and find ways to undermine and minimize and negate conservative content. These are all of them intensely left-leaning companies run entirely by people on the far left. There there is no one in any position of significant leadership at any of these companies that could at all be described as right-wing. They would have been been tossed out long ago. They never would have made it to that position in the first place. So there, there are real scandals. There are real things that could be uncovered. But CNN and and the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the corporate media... They have no interest in any of that. In fact, they're trying to make the opposite case about 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 uh, Facebook and and even Twitter now. Uh, there was a there was a, a story from one of these corporate media outlets about how on Twitter, big scandal. Tur- turns out that uh, there are some right wing accounts on Twitter that get more engagement than left wing accounts. I mean, they're actually trying to claim, actually trying to claim that there is a pro right wing bias. Uh, on Facebook and, and and on Twitter, but that's again always staying on on the offense. No, they're not going to be on defense and defend themselves, or or you know defend Facebook and Twitter from claims of of uh, of anti right bias or pro. No, they're, they're going to go all the way to the other other end and say no. Actually, these these sites are are pro right wing. That's how you're getting so much engagement. Yeah, there are accounts on Facebook and Twitter that get a lot of engagement and are on the right, but that is in spite of everything these companies have done to minimize us. Why do we still get that engagement? Well, maybe because our content is engaging. Because people are interested in it. So they don't, but they don't want to talk about that. That's the, that's the one real scandal. They can't talk about it. So they're grasping at straws to find something else. And uh, there's just nothing there. I mean, I've read through yet 17 corporate media outlets releasing this major report about all the things they've discovered about Facebook. Just like the Facebook whistleblower testifying in front of Congress. I've listened to all of that. I've read all the reports. And there's, there's, there's simply nothing. The headline is just that uh, is Facebook values profits. Whoa, had no idea. And also, also that it's not particularly good for people, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, to spend a lot of time on social media. And that's especially true for our kids. Another, another stunning revelation. But outside of that, they, they, there's really, there's, They've, they have dug up nothing. They've been digging and digging, and they've dug up nothing because what they could be digging up is over there. It's on the other side of the field, but they're, they're digging holes over here where, where the uh, skeletons aren't buried. All right, here's a tweet from Ora Bogato, media person, in reaction to Alec Baldwin's statement about the shooting where um, you know, he released a, a statement about uh, the shooting on the, on the set of his film. And he calls the victim a wife, mother, and colleague, which is what she was. Ora Bogato says, Halina Hutchins was a person in and of herself. She was a cinematographer. She was a professional. For men, women, uh, for men, women continue to exist only in reference to men. It's patriarchal. It's violent. And in this particular case, it feels especially disgusting. So for Ora Bogato, This is what she's upset at Alec Baldwin for. Not for shooting the poor woman and killing her, but for, after the fact, describing her as a wife. This is patriarchal, apparently. Meanwhile, you know, the the funny thing is, she said, well, don't don't describe her as a wife. Um, Describe her as a professional. Describe her as a, you know, a a cinematographer. 
But that also, if you describe people in terms of what they do for a living, you're still describing them based on their relationship to other people. And that's how, that's how we are all defined. That's how we all define ourselves. N- none of us define ourselves in a vacuum. We define ourselves by our relationship with and to other people. And for almost everyone, fundamentally, the relationships that matter most to them, it's, it's not at work. It's not their profession. It's their family, their spouses, their kids. Um, but for feminists, they, they find this very upsetting, even though it's, it's, it is fundamental and basic to human nature. You, really, you can't describe anyone in a, in a vacuum. I mean, try, try doing that. Try, try describing someone in a meaningful way without making any reference to their relationships to other people. Impossible to do. Uh, next, we have Josh Mandel. He's a Senate candidate in Ohio, and he caused a little bit of a stir online. He was trending online for a while because of what he said about the separation of church and state. Let's play that first. Left, the fake news media, the uniparty in Washington, they're trying to take God out of all aspects of society. And they're trying to water down on the Judeo-Christian bedrock of America. And my personal feeling is we shouldn't be watering down. We should be doubling down. We should be instilling faith in the classroom, in the workplace, and everywhere in society. The secular left, the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center, a lot of these Soros-funded organizations, uh, they they advance the argument that the separation of church and state exists, and for that reason, you can't teach kids about religion. My personal feeling is there's no such thing as separation of church and state. The framers of the Constitution envisioned a country where in the classroom, kids would learn about God, that in the classroom, kids would learn about good versus evil, and that Judeo-Christian ethic separates itself from Islam and atheism and all these other belief sets on so many levels, but one of the main levels is our acknowledgement of good versus evil. Uh, yeah, of course, there's nothing you can do that's more uh, sure to cause outrage these days than to, than to speak basic common sense. Everything you said there was basic common sense and also historically accurate. Of course, the separation of church and state uh, should it should be it should be widely known and understood. The separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. That was in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson. And in fact, um, and, and usually letters written by political figures don't carry any kind of legal weight. At least they shouldn't. But his concern in the letter was not with religion's effect on government, but with government effects government's effect on religion. And that's why he was talking about the need for a separation of church and state. But He's correct in the clip there that you can't really, no matter what the Supreme Court says, no matter what we claim, you can't actually separate uh, church and state in that way, especially not in a classroom, especially not in an educational context. Because a person's religious views, you know, if they're, if they're in charge of education, if they're in charge of teaching, their religious views are always going to come through. There's always going to be a value system attached to the education. Not not simply attached, like some sort of accessory, but the education is going to come in the context of a value system. That's always going to be true. There's no way of getting around that. Which is why I'm always saying, you know, we, we can't, it's easy to talk about how we don't want our kids to be indoctrinated, but that's not actually the issue here. The issue is not that our kids are being indoctrinated, period. It's the way that they're being indoctrinated and who's doing the indoctrination and what they're being indoctrinated into. But indoctrination simply means instilling values. It means passing on a a belief system, a worldview. Which is, as parents, of course we want to do that with our kids. So yes, I want to indoctrinate my kids. All parents do, whether they use the word or not. Um, and that's going to be the case in the school system, no matter what. And yes, right now in the school system, it is very much a religious environment. 
when I was uh, at the Nashville public school board meeting talking about masks, there were religious icons all plastered all over the room. People were wearing them. Except the religious icon, it was, they, were, they weren't crucifixes. It was uh, gay pride flags. That, for the left, is a religious icon. It's part of their religion, whether they call it that or not. Critical race theory, gender ideology, all of this. These are not just religious views. These are intensely religious views. Gender ideology. There's, there's nothing else you can call that. I mean, the, the, the belief that uh, a, a boy or a man can somehow, in some mysterious and mystical way, can really be a woman. You know, you can have the essence of a woman trapped inside him. This doesn't make any sense on any level. But if, if you want to even begin, begin to make sense of it, you have to engage with it on a spiritual level. This, this is a spiritual, religious claim. So all of that is true. You're going to have that in the classroom no matter what. Uh, it's just a matter of what the, what the value systems are, what the religious views are. Now, with all that said, um, w- would I actually want public school teachers to be teaching the Christian religion? Well, the answer there is no, because I wouldn't trust them to do it. You know, I, I, say, I say the same thing with, uh, with sex ed. But there's always the argument about, do we want, uh, it should, should it be comp- so-called comprehensive sex ed or should it be uh, abstinence first sex ed? And usually conservatives say, oh, no, I want teachers teaching abstinence. Yeah, that's, that's better than the so-called comprehensive sex ed, but I don't really want that either because I don't, I don't trust the teachers to do that correctly. I don't, I don't trust them to, to impart, you know, to kind of make the moral case for uh, saving yourself from marriage. I don't, I don't trust them to do that. That's a very important and delicate message, and I wouldn't trust government employees with it. So all this goes back to homeschool. That's really the answer. All right. uh, Let's see. I also wanted to mention this. This is from Bloomberg. It says a Virginia museum is proposing to melt down a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. That was the focus of a violent white nationalist rally in 2017 in Charlottesville and create a new work of public art. The Jefferson School African American Heritage Center submitted its proposal last week to Charlottesville City Council and City Manager. It outlines a plan to create the new work of art through a community engagement process and then give it to the city to be installed on public land. So you see the progression here. First it was, okay, we just want to take down a few Confederate statues. And then it was, okay, actually we want to take all of them down. But that'll be it. That'll be the end of it, we promise. And then it was, actually, all right, we want to take down uh, all the Confederate statues, but, and, and also Columbus, and he's coming down too. But that'll be it. And then it was, never mind, yeah, we got to tear down the, the, uh, the founders too. Sorry, they, they, they got to come down. Sorry, TJ, he's got to go down too. But, but don't worry, it'll all go to a museum. And then finally, now we're told, hey, funny story, the museum is going to melt down. The, the museum's where we said we're going to send all this stuff, because it's not a war on history. We're just sending it to a museum, that's all. But funny story, um, in fact, the museum is going to melt the statues down and turn them into a sculpture of George Floyd riding a unicorn to heaven. And of course, at each step along the way, idiots on the right have said, well, okay, as long as this is it. The whole claim that they're, that they're going to take all these sculptures, which they say are, were, are, are hateful and bigoted, and they're going to respectfully store them and put them on display in a museum. I mean, if you believe that, I don't know what to tell you. That was never going to be the case. Most of these things they've taken down and said are going to museums, but some of them have already been destroyed. Most of them are just in a warehouse somewhere. Um, and and uh, we'll never see the light of day or will be destroyed. And we talk about how this is a war on history, which it is. But it's also important to point out that this is um, not only a war on history, it's part of our culture's continued war on, on beauty. Because it's not irrelevant that many of the uh, statues that have been taken out, including this Robert E. Lee one, these are, whatever you think of the subject, 
These are beautiful works of art that were made by, by real artists decades and you know over a century ago in this case. Um, and we're destroying beautiful works of art to replace them with, you know, God knows what. God knows what they're going to come up with in, in place of that. All right, uh, finally, I'm afraid I have to play this as much as it pains me. Ben Shapiro is back on the college circuit again doing YAF events, which is great. But during the Q&A event, um, one of our courageous brothers, one of our comrades from the Sweet Baby Gang, was generous enough. This was an act of generosity, and we in the Sweet Baby Gang are very generous. And so he was generous enough to offer Ben an opportunity to pledge his undying loyalty to the gang. And Ben was, uh, I have to say, not gracious in his response. Listen. One more question. Would I be able to get you right here, right now, to pledge your undying allegiance to Matt Walsh's sweet baby gang? No. Okay. Reprehensible. Not even worthy of an explanation, says Ben. Let's be honest about what this is, gang. Uh, Ben Shapiro has declared war on the Sweet Baby Gang. And because anyone who does not swear fealty to the Sweet Baby Gang is our enemy. We all understand that. You're either in the gang or you're not. And if you're not, then you're an enemy and an existential threat to our existence. That's the side that uh, Ben Shapiro has chosen. And he will rue the day. Rue the day. Next time I see him here in the office, I'm going to... I'm not going to say anything, but I will think. You have no idea the kinds of things I'll be thinking. Although I do, when I listen to that clip, I did like the fact that uh, he mentioned the Sweet Baby Gang and the crowd. You know, I was kind of expecting the crowd, just there, there to be a confused silence in the crowd. Like, what? But no, the sweet, this, this, is the, this is how fast the Sweet Baby Gang has grown. This is how our movement is growing. Everyone in that crowd knew exactly. They were all members of the gang. All right. Let's, uh, speaking of which, let's read the comments. This dictatorship is on its way. Daily cancellations are the law and order of the day. The sweet baby gang. Did you know a baby's heartbeat uh, begins at just three weeks? At five weeks, you can hear it on an ultrasound. By six weeks, the baby's eyes are forming. By 10 weeks, a baby is able to move his or her hands. I'm telling you this because when a mother who is considering abortion is introduced to her child via ultrasound, when she hears the heartbeat for the first time, she's twice as likely to choose life. And that's how Preborn rescued 200 babies every day. They provide mothers with free ultrasound so that they can meet the life that is growing inside them. Preborn needs our help to save these precious souls. For just 28 bucks, you can sponsor an ultrasound and save a life. And if you become a monthly sponsor, you'll receive stories and ultrasound pictures that uh, of the lives that you help save. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com slash Walsh. That's preborn.com slash Walsh. Jay Maran says, I grew up without either parent and was subsequently raised by my grandparents whom I called mom and dad. Now that I'm married and have two boys of my own, I can attest that everything Matt said about fathers and the parenting dynamic between the parents is absolutely 100% correct. Uh, yeah, I, this, that's because it's, we, we can all attest to, to that fact. Uh, whether we had a father growing up, you know, if, you, if you had an attentive father growing up, then you know how valuable fathers are. And if you didn't, then you know even more how valuable fathers are. Um, but at least temporarily, the media finally discovered it yesterday, as we talked about. Um, uh, Bad House Media says, I do love how genuinely angry Matt gets when he talks about what's happening to kids. His concern and real anger towards the left is really inspiring. Well, I'm not the only one. I mean, this is this is something that I think, and we're, we'll, I don't want to give it all away because we're going to talk about this in the Daily Cancellation, but this is something that that does provoke and should provoke real anger in, in, in all of us as parents when we see what's happening to, to our kids. Jake Williams says, an astronaut 
with a sword is clearly a Jedi, Matt. No, I mean, a, a Jedi is even more useless than that. So, no, I, I, I didn't watch Star Wars as a kid. And if I, if I had watched it, I would not have gone trick-or-treating as a Jedi. One of my many problems with Star Wars is that massive hole in the story of you've got these, what, first of all, this, this is happening, well, I guess it's happening long, long ago in a galaxy far away, but it's still, you know, they, they have futuristic technology. Anyone, any old person, like the, the, the Star Wars equivalent of a middle class, lower class person can buy a spaceship at a, at a secondhand store that, that, that goes the speed of light. And then you've got Jedis who, who also on top of it have magical powers and the, their weapon of choice is a laser sword. That has never made any sense to me. Um, Danny says, Matt's parents only told him that the candy was poisoned so that they could eat it. Well, I, that is something that I figured out only much, much later in life that I figured that out, but I, I, I've realized that now. Um, Ed Proctor says, Dear God, Matt has a view of what marriage is that dates back to the caveman. I feel sorry for his wife, not to mention his poor kids. Yeah, I mean, I it's it is it's a caveman view. Well, how, how dare I? How embarrassing and shameful of me that you know I have the same view of marriage that almost every man in the country does. That we, we would like to share a name with our wives. This is yet another example of something that you know I can say that provokes all this outrage. Meanwhile, almost everyone agrees. Almost every man in America would strongly prefer. In f- when they do get married, their wives share the names. And, they, and if they're not married yet, they would strongly prefer it. Um, and in fact, this is a, tr- is a tradition that goes back, I think, uh, about a thousand years. But Ed, if you, want, if you want to say it goes back all the way to caveman times, I'll take that too. That makes it an even more timeless tradition. Even more reason to respect it. Um, Ryan says, this isn't the first time I've heard you reference the crucible, and I'm all, and I, for one, am all for it. Do you think with the full lobby of the Sweet Baby Gang, Daily Wire might look into the rights to stream it? Yeah, I don't know about that, but I do think the crucible, you know, that to me is sort of like my, the, the way that, that uh, people reference 1984 all the time. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I reference the crucible, especially in our cancel, in our, in our cancel culture. I think that there are, are a lot of important parallels. To the crucible. Uh, and uh, let's see what else do we got here. Finally, Lightbrand says, I'm with Matt on his excellent explanation of name and unity, yet Matt's answer as to why we should keep the man's name rather than the woman's is because it's tradition. I was hoping for a more profound reasoning going behind the merit of it all and why said tradition is correct. But after five minutes of babble, it's still it's tradition and we shouldn't change it without good reason because our forefathers did it and we and we're inheriting it. So don't question it. Uh, well, I did give the reason behind it, which is that the, the man is supposed to be the head of the home and the leader in the home, which is what I, which is what I believe. Um, so that's the reason. Um, or at least that's one of the significant reasons. But see, you're, you're, you're showing the same attitude to tradition that's very common on the left, very common in our, in our culture today generally. That, you know, if, if, it's, if it's just a tradition, then we might as well throw it out. Even if we don't know why it was there, even if we have no reason to throw it out, a thousand-year-old tradition, ah, eh, just dispense of it. Because you don't see any value in tradition itself. Um, that's certainly not a, a conservative view, I can tell you that. That's another thing. We talk about what we're trying to conserve as conservatives. I would think that's, that's another of the big, the big ones, trying to conserve our cultural traditions. Uh, All right, let's get now to our daily cancellation. I want to take a second to tell you again about our friends over at 40 Days for Life and their new book, What to Say When the Complete New Guide to Discussing Abortion. Uh, People tend to get a little bit nervous when the uh, subject of abortion comes up, and there's no reason for that. If you're, if you're, at least if you're a pro-life, there's no reason to be nervous because you have all the truth on your side. We have truth and what is right on our side, which is which is a great advantage in any discussion. But the problem is, how do you sift through all of the nonsense that's thrown at you by the pro-abortion side. 
Well, this book, which is uh, has been a number one Amazon new release and a number two Amazon bestseller, will tell you exactly how to do that. This book is incredibly easy to use. It tells you what to say, what not to say, and it's proven arguments that have worked with everybody. People on the fence, abortion supporters, even Planned Parenthood workers have found these arguments compelling. 40 Days for Life is the largest grassroots pro-life organization in the world. They've held peaceful vigils outside abortion facilities in 1,000 cities and 64 countries, and they've helped convert the hearts of 221 abortion workers and counting, so you know you can trust them. Just go now to Amazon or get it directly from 40 Days for Life at 40daysforlife.com. And also, there's no better way to wake up than with your once-daily dose of the facts. That's why The Daily Wire created Morning Wire, the daily morning show dedicated to bringing you all the news you need to know without any spin or hidden agenda. It's the only daily podcast that values your time and the truth. And while we're working overtime to make sure fact-based news still has a platform, we need your help to keep the facts trending towards number one. So subscribe and start listening now to Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. The Virginia's governor's race will be decided in a week from today. Most pundits and prognosticators thought it had already been decided months ago, coming off a presidential election where Biden carried the state by 10 points. And with, at the time, the Democrat challenger Terry McAuliffe leading in the polls by a healthy margin. But things have changed. And now Republican Glenn Youngkin is tied neck and neck with McAuliffe in a race that was never supposed to be close at all. And all the momentum is on his side as well. Youngkin is doing something that Republicans are very rarely able to do. He's, he's dictating the terms of the race. He's deciding what the main issues are. Donald Trump was always good at that. He was good at dictating terms in this way. Few other Republicans have been able to do the same, but that's what's happening right now in Virginia. That's what Barack Obama was railing against when he showed up to a stump for McAuliffe yesterday, whining that Republicans were focusing on phony culture war issues. Here's that clip again. We don't have time to be wasting on these phony, trumped-up culture wars. This fake outrage that that right-wing media peddles to juice their ratings. And the fact that he's willing to go along with it instead of talking about serious problems that actually affect serious people, that's a shame. That's not what this election's about. That's not what you need, Virginia. Instead of forcing our communities to cut back at a time when we're just starting to recover. We should be doing more to support people who are educating our kids and keeping our neighborhoods safe. Of course, this is a risable claim coming from Obama, complaining about fake outrages after his side just had a month-long psychotic meltdown over a stand-up comedy special. I mean, these are the people who made headline news out of an NFL coach's vulgar emails a decade ago. They turned a high school kid into a national villain because he smiled at a Native American guy in D.C., Fake outrages are their specialty. It's what they do. And yet, Obama is not entirely wrong. And we would make a mistake to entirely dismiss his point. He's wrong when he uses words like phony, but he's right that the governor's race of Virginia has become centered around the culture war. It has indeed become a cultural fight. And that's worked out well for the Republican in the race. Youngkin, who began his campaign as a kind of standard factory-issue GOP guy, has in the last several weeks moved away from that mold and leaned into the social and cultural issues. And that's largely why he's now surging. Whether he wins or loses next week, this is a point that Republicans at all levels everywhere in the country need to absorb. It's also a point that I've been screaming for years. Contrary to the faux wisdom of the establishment, you don't win elections by speaking to people exclusively through their wallets. You're not going to motivate masses of voters to flock to the polls because you have a tax plan that's moderately better than the other dude. No, you speak to people through their hearts, their souls, by connecting with what they value even more than money or financial security. I mean, the March for Life um, has attracted a a half a million people annually to D.C. for four decades. No other movement in the history of the country has ever been able to do anything like that because the pro-life movement is animated by its determination to protect the dignity and worth of human life. Our belief in the dignity of worth of human life is fundamental. It gets down to the core of who we are. I believe strongly that taxes should be lowered, but I probably wouldn't die for that cause. I would die for the pro-life cause because that's how deeply it matters to me. And I know that every other pro-lifer feels the same. So that's just an example to show how much the the quote-unquote social issues actually matter. The social issues fueling the Virginia race are less about abortion and more about parental rights. Now, the media will say that the debate is about education, and it is But this isn't some dry back and forth over education policy. 
These are parents who want to protect their children from being indoctrinated into the far-left cults of critical race theory and gender ideology. The battle over education in Virginia is very much a cultural battle. It's a culture war. Obama's right about that. It's just not the kind of culture war that he wants to have. Democrats would rather not discuss indoctrinations in the schools at all, for good reason. Terry McAuliffe has been fumbling the issue spectacularly for weeks, first saying out loud that parents shouldn't decide what their kids are taught, and now, most recently, admitting that there are some issues with education, but then he intentionally misses the point about what those issues really are. Listen. I make the point that we've got to do a better job in our education system. We've got to go back K to 6. Early on, we've got to start teaching talking about these issues much earlier than we've done it before. And we don't do a good job in our education system talking about diversity, inclusion, openness, and so forth. We don't. We've got our textbooks. But, you know, there has to be a big part of how how do you fit in in, into the social work of our nation and our fabric? How is it that we deal with one another is, to me, is as important as, you know, your math class or your English class and so forth. And we don't. Yes, the education system is failing to teach diversity and inclusion, Terry says. Meanwhile, the parents rallying at school boards in the state feel exactly the opposite about it. The schools spend entirely too much time imposing their twisted ideas of diversity and inclusion onto their students. We don't want to live in a culture guided by leftist notions of diversity and inclusion, the kind of inclusion that includes boys and girls' bathrooms, for example. That's why McAuliffe would prefer to just not talk about these issues at all. Democrats would much rather indoctrinate your children quietly, induct them into the leftist ranks without anyone noticing, while never having to defend the practice, much less defend the ideas that they're foisting on our kids. Youngkin is perhaps on his way to a a once improbable victory precisely because he's forcing Democrats to talk about the things they don't want to talk about. So who is canceled today? I hope we could say that establishment republicanism which shies away from cultural battles and social issues in favor of issues nobody really cares about, is canceled. Should have been canceled long ago. Recent events, not just in Virginia, but across the country, should, I would hope, put a final nail in its coffin. And that'll do it for us today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. A Democrat gubernatorial candidate says diversity and inclusion is as important to a student's education as math and English class. A Yale epidemiologist encourages parents to pull their kids out of school rather than making them take the Fauci ouchie. And Dave Chappelle refuses to cower to the woke mob. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.